Warning, the podcast you're about to listen to may contain graphic descriptions of violent assaults, murder, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast, The Murder of Joseph Trevor Dilger, Part 1 of 4. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast. I am Wendy. And I'm David. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. Today, we are going to be talking about the murder of Joseph Trevor Dilger, a case from September 4th, 2016. David, why don't you tell us a little bit about this? This four-part miniseries is going to bring the listeners a combination of arson investigation and homicide investigation as those two come together to solve this case. Our guests are going to be Chris O'Brien an arson investigator formerly with the Lexington Fire Department, and Tim Upchurch, our homicide investigator formerly with the Lexington Police Department. This is going to be a very educational piece for our listeners. All right, well, let's dig right in and get to it. Let's go. Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Murder Police Podcast. Today we have joining us retired Detective Tim Upchurch and retired fire captain and now arson investigator, Mr. Chris O'Brien. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming. Chris, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. Tim, how about yourself? Doing great. Thank you. And we have David with us. Glad to be here. Super excited to get this one. This one's going to bring some details that the audience probably hasn't heard about before. Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so I want to talk about my fire career because I've been involved in the fire career for uh, about 30 years as of now. And and I started, I grew up in Western Kentucky um, and I started as a volunteer in Stanley Fire Department. I and mean, that's where I, you know, cut my teeth to get in the fire service. And the interesting thing, after I graduated high school, I went to Eastern Kentucky University. However, my degree was wildlife biology. I didn't know EKU had a fire science program, but after I got there and had been there for about a semester, I learned that they had this very well professional fire science program that they offered a bachelor of science degree in. And I changed my major that the minute I found that I changed my major and I majored in fire and safety engineering. And my uh, emphasis was fire arson investigations. So I had the opportunity to go to EKU and I graduated in 1996 with a degree uh, in fire and safety engineering uh, arson. And it was after that, that I, you know, began looking to to start my career. And I really wanted to be, I was really wanting to get on the fire department. I wasn't ready to investigate fires then. So I applied at a couple different fire departments in Kentucky. One of them was Louisville and one of them was Lexington. And the interesting thing about Louisville is actually I was there for an interview with, uh, for the, for the position. And one of the commanders asked me, would I be interested in getting in the, in the, uh, their arson bureau? And Louisville does a little bit different uh, from my understanding. They hire fire investigators. They put them through the police academy. Uh, they put them through the fire academy. And then that's all they do is fire arson investigations. We're Lexington. We're a little, little bit different. So I ended up taking the job in Lexington, obviously, in February of 1997. 
started my career there to, I wanted to uh, ride a fire truck. I wanted to get that experience of the fire suppression side of it. I wasn't ready to start investigating fires. I wanted to get that additional education and training, which is what Lexington uh, provided and allowed me to do, which I started in February of 97. One of the, the surreal things about the beginning of my career, about 13 days in to my recruit class, we get I'm in the recruit class and get called in by the chief who advises the whole class that there's been a line of duty death. Uh, and it was it was a, a fire that involved a house where an individual by the name of Chuck Williams uh, and another firefighter, Jerry Ray, had fallen through the floor. Jerry Ray was able to be rescued and was injured, but alive. Unfortunately, Chuck Williams did perish in this fire. Lexington Fire Arson and Lexington Police Department homicide did investigate this and determined it was a criminal event. It was an arson, and they did make an arrest and charge an individual with that, with that crime. So that was, you know, that was, uh, you know, 13 days into my recruit class and I'm going to line of duty death. I had been in, I'd been to line of duty death funerals before just being in the fire service for a little bit. But, you know, my classmates hadn't. There was a lot that, that had never been a line of duty death. But but this is the, this was the real, the real deal. This was, uh, you know, a tragedy that happened. And another interesting thing about a, a really good friend of mine. So once I graduated in uh, May of 97 and I went to uh Station One, which is down on Third Street and Martin Luther, uh, and rode a busy engine company. And my friend Jason Stevenson was with me. Well, a few years later, after I transferred out, Jason Stevenson makes a fire to Sixth and Maple Street. Uh, he's working off of a ladder and he falls off that ladder, hits a door on his way down, and lands on top of his head. And he was severely injured. Unfortunately for him, he's, you know, he had to leave the job. But that house, that house fire also was investigated and determined to be an arson. So now I've got uh, my best friend and Chuck Williams, who I didn't know, are killed and or uh, severely injured, both by an arson fire, you know, here in Lexington. So, you know, when I look at my career and, and why I want to be an arson investigator is one thing. But then one of the things that probably drove me to try to be the best investigator that I could be was these encounters that I had happened so close to me throughout my early, you know, my early career. Pretty commendable stuff. And then I'll tell you one reason I was excited about getting one of these arson cases on is that when I was in the unit, I worked several and actually Chuck was one of mine. And, you know, you look back over your career on some of the cases that impacted you the most. And that was it. I got to work with Gary Ward he was in arson at the time and learned a tremendous amount, and not just from that fire, but other fires too. Yeah, that was that was a tragic case that stuck with me for a long time, a long time. So, very commendable career, and and, and I think the audience will love hearing more about the um, relationships that you build with the police department and vice versa to investigate these cases. But I don't think you could get motivated any more higher than you are for the right reasons for that. I agree with that. Well, thank you for your service. Well, Tim, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career? I know you're recently retired, but tell us a little bit about uh, what brought you into police and what you've done throughout your career. You know, I've, I've had that question multiple times throughout my life. Why did you become a police officer? And, you know, I'm from a small town in Monticello, Kentucky, and I knew that I was going to go to college. I knew I didn't have a choice but to go to college. And that was my parents were 100 percent behind making sure that all their children went to college. So I started looking into where I wanted to get, where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do with my life. And 
I started looking at uh, Eastern Kentucky University, and uh, I saw that looked into the criminal justice program there, and I decided that that was what I was going to do. Once I got to Eastern, you know, I had a great college college uh, time there, and and at one point in time, I thought about getting out of uh, criminal justice and getting into uh, agri science because I was from a small town and liked being around the the farm life some, but. I stuck it out, and the events of 9-11 just solidified me for, for wanting to be the police. I graduated from Eastern Kentucky University in 2002, in May of 2002, to be exact, and I was in the process for Lexington. I'd looked at several other agencies, but after looking at all the different agencies across Kentucky and where I wanted to be, I just felt like Lexington was where I wanted to be because of all the opportunities that they had. I knew I didn't want to be stuck in one particular location or doing one thing all the time. So that's why I chose Lexington. I went through the interview process with Lexington. And at that point in time, there was a program called Kentucky Police Corps. And it was a program that was a federal program that if an agency would sponsor you and you made it through the academy, they you had to sign a four-year contract with the police department that you're going to. And then they'd reimburse you up to so much of your college education. So that was a win-win for me. Your mom and dad were happy, weren't they? Absolutely. So, you know, I went through that. And you had, like I said, you had to sign the four-year contract. And and their whole thing behind this program at the time was getting college-educated people into policing, people that had a college education and could bring that college education to to an agency, especially rural agencies and other agencies of small departments and things like that, getting uh, people into those agencies that had an education. So, you know, I went through that. Uh, that was a that was a treat. We, you know, they sent us to Mexico for two weeks. Um, got to do some immersion there with uh, uh, Spanish. Got to learn, you know, the culture of the Spanish because at that point in time, you know, we were, we had a lot of immigrants in in this area, and it, that helped us out a lot. Um, just learning the differences of lifestyles and families and the way that their culture was. So it was real, real uh, educational time for us. I graduated the academy and then, of course, as police corps, I went through the Department of Criminal Justice training. And then from there, I had to go through like 12, 12 or 13 weeks of Lexington's academy, which wasn't the full academy, but it was an abbreviated because we'd been through 24 weeks with the Department of Criminal Justice training. So after completing that and coming to Lexington and completing my uh, academy here, I went through the field training and so on and so forth. My career has been, I've, I had a great career. I, I've, I wouldn't give it up for the world. I got to be in multiple uh, units throughout my career. I started out in patrol, as most people do, and then I moved to traffic um, while in traffic, I was collision reconstruction certified and uh, a mix-up, which is large vehicles inspect- inspections. From there, I decided that I wanted to go to the detective bureau, and then I went to the residential burglary where I spent uh, approximately a year before I was convinced to go to the robbery homicide unit. So I went to the, <laughs> I went to the robbery homicide unit in the summer of 2011. And then I left the homicide unit in the summer of 2019. So I spent eight years in the robbery homicide unit. And then my last year I spent in the residential burglary before retiring. Fantastic. Uh, This is actually an Eastern Kentucky University alumni meeting then because that's where I got one of my degrees. 
a long time ago when they called it police administration. And I took that because they didn't have math. It was a pretty good inspiration. And, and Chris, probably over the years, we probably crossed paths. I, you know, I, I'm sure because I've been, you know, as much as police and fire tease each other and we've got a healthy bunch of teasing that happens in this town, we get along great. I mean, it's always, it was one of my favorite parts. And Tim, I think the first time I met you, you were brand new. And you were out working one of the ice storms. Do you remember that? We were working the ice storm, and uh, you and I had a break together, and we went to the Waffle House to eat. And that was before Waffle House, whatever, would accept credit cards or a debit card even. So I was, I was like, I don't have any money. <laughs> so, I forgot so, about that. So uh, he, you bought my you bought my dinner, and I was like, I've always told him ever since then. Every time I see him, I say, I owe you dinner. I owe you dinner. Still to this day, I owe you dinner. Well, it, with rates of inflation, we're probably talking about Malone's at, at that point. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, and, and yeah, because I remember sitting at – now, I'll call it the Waffle House, and one day I'll tell people why we call it the Waffle House. I was in an interview with a witness one time where it was called the Waffle House. Great stuff. And I think what's neat is to uh, – to get to hear what brings people to these assignments and and to do some amazing work is that all that all that just builds up and prepares people for that. I kind of chuckled too when you said you were convinced to go to robbery homicide because I'm just having flashbacks of similar conversations. <laughs> yes. But uh, but the big thing is is that somebody knew you belonged over there. That's that's what's important too. So fantastic stuff, fantastic. So Wendy, where we want to go from here? Well, gentlemen, thank you for sharing about your backgrounds and what brought you to where you are today. We are going to be discussing Mr. Joseph Dilger and his murder. Joseph is a 24-year-old man who was murdered Labor Day weekend on Sunday, September 4th, 2016. So why don't you all tell us a little bit about this victim and let's dive into this case and what brought us here. Joseph was, a, uh, like you said, a 24-year-old kid. He was he was from Lexington, Kentucky. He was from a uh, his family is especially his father was from they were Irish descent. And Joseph, something to tell you a little bit about Joseph was he had spent some time as a uh, in the military, uh, as well as he was also a an employee with the uh, Lexington Fayette Urban County uh, Detention Center for a little for a little bit. His mom and dad were I would class say. Blue collar workers. They're a hardworking family that that cared a lot for their children and and would provide for them as much as they they could, and wanted to see their children succeed in life. So, with that being said, who arrived at the scene between the two of you gentlemen first on this Sunday, September fourth, and what did the call go out as? So, the initial call was a vehicle fire on Red Road. Just as a typical vehicle fire, it just will get a fire engine company. Um, and engine 13 responded to Red Road for this vehicle fire and was extinguished the fire. And after they extinguished it enough, they realized that that there was a body in the in the vehicle. So at that point, it was when engine 13 requests different personnel to respond. The interesting thing about uh, about this uh, initial response was. I was in my 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 uh, fire department vehicle and I had a you know had a radio on and I hear engine 13 call for fire investigator a district major the coroner's office of course Lexington police was already there because they typically would respond with fire personnel on vehicle fires or anything to to assist with traffic but this request for these other individuals came out and that there was a a body in the back seat of this vehicle when I heard that so 
as an arson investigator, we only had about six arson investigators that cover Lexington. And this particular day, because it was a holiday weekend, um, there was nobody working at the at the office. So that position is covered by an on-call investigator. Well, the on-call investigator, Lieutenant John Blanton, he it was his turn to basically be the lead investigator on this case. And he was, but he lives out of town. So I contacted John because anytime we had any fire that was involved a fatality, we would always get another person, another investigator to respond just to give a little bit more, you know, more, more eyes on the scene to assist with this investigation. So that was with any fatality. So because John was coming in and because I'm in Lexington already, I actually got to the scene well before he did. Real quick, Red Road, if just so people can put it together, whereabouts is that in the Lexington area and how populated is that area? What are we talking about where the fire was? It's a very, it's a rural area of Lexington and it's more of a one lane road through that area. It's kind of, it's in the area uh, behind Keeneland back in, back in the uh, rural area of Gotcha. Keeneland being the racetrack here. Exactly. So it was it typical to get uh, vehicle fires out remotely like that, or do you usually see them like on the interstate or populated areas? Normally they're, they're, it, they're on, you know, roadways, red road, which I didn't even know where red road was because it's just a, not traveled typically. So I had to look up on a map. And actually Tim, when you said Keeneland, that drove it in for me because it kind of remote back there in the back. Yes. It, I think they use that for some of the overflow traffic when they leave or whatever. But I think that's interesting, too, is that where you, you find a vehicle fire that's typically away from a populated area because there was a case I had in 98 that involved an arson. And it was 3.30 in the morning, I think, in a field where a fire was. So, you know, you right off the bat, that's just bizarre. It's not like the engine overheated or an electrical problem, probably. So, good deal. Well, what happens after that? What's that look like whenever I start responding? So, so after Engine 13 had requested these uh, other entities, the coroner's office, homicide detectives, fire investigations, of course, I show up out there and there's several individuals sitting there waiting. The fire crews, and this is pretty common, you know, the fire crews had identified a couple of witnesses. So these witnesses are very willing to assist with what we need. So they keep them there. And, and that was pretty common. They will hold them there, not detain them, but just ask them to stay there so that they can give their statement to the fire investigators. And keep in mind, the, the engine company is just concerned about the fire initially. You know, they don't know what's going on with the body. Their only concern is give me a fire investigator because we've had a fire. And that's the fire companies. That's what they call. They call for us, the fire investigators. So I had the opportunity to speak to these two two individuals, these witnesses. And because I wasn't the lead, I got a little information from them, but I wanted them to really give their statement to Tim and John as the lead fire investigator and the lead homicide detective. But the one was pretty interesting. So so that particular weekend was, it was fairly early deer season. And the one individual, and to give you an idea, this area is surrounded by cornfields and bean fields and and very remote, and this deer hunter was hunting in a, a small wooded area in the center of this cornfield. And he gives me a little bit of information that, you know, he had overheard an argument between a male and a female, and then after he hears this argument, he comes down out of his deer stand. It's starting to get dusk, 
and he comes out of his deer stand and, and is coming towards his house when he sees smoke coming from what looks like the direction of his house, which he lived in the area. So then he comes up to Red Road and he discovers the vehicle on fire. That was one of the two witnesses. And then the other witness gave me a brief statement that he had seen a van pull in his driveway and he followed that van and the van had turned up Red Road. And then he discovered that there was a vehicle parked in this little gravel lot on Red Road and it was on fire. So those those two key witnesses, and I know Tim can probably speak better because I, uh, I'm sure he interviewed them in more detail, but they gave me a little bit of a brief. And again, so I, you know, one of the things I wanted to make sure is I had their information because they were key witnesses that we needed to get a good statement from them uh, to help us with this case. Can I, let me ask you this. You talked about how the firefighters on the scene actually identified those as witnesses and asked them to stick around. Do y'all train firefighters on the line that in these cases to try to do that? Or is that something that y'all push for a little bit? Yes. Anytime we do like a fire investigation class and we do a lot, you know, we do a lot of teaching for our recruits. Um, we, we do a lot of teaching for our company officers as far as fire investigations. So we identify things that where we need their help in those areas are identify individuals who may have information and at the least thing, get their phone number so that we can get a hold of them. Because unfortunately, witnesses only hang around so long. And as far as like a fire investigator, we may not even make it to the scene for 45 minutes where those witnesses may be gone. So, you know, we have to have the ability to capture that information whenever we can. So, yeah, we do. We do teach that to our company officers. Something I never knew, which is kind of neat, is the idea that that they look for doing things outside of knocking the fire down and keeping everything safe. That's And in this case, right off, it, that's it got to be a good feeling, Tim, too, when you get involved to to know you got two actual witnesses that were that close to something that rural, that's got to be amazing. So I guess at that point, Chris, do you reach out to Tim or how did you all make that connection with each other? Yeah, as soon as Tim was there and there was another detective from Robbery Homicide that was there, I made sure that those individuals knew the, the, the names of the witnesses and that they were going to need to talk to them. Um, so I just relayed that information and just asked them to stay there. And they were they were very helpful. They were very good witnesses. Their stories were good, spot on. And I'm fairly certain they helped with this, so, uh, helped with the solving of this case. And Tim, let's real quick, and it won't jump us out of order, but how do you come into this? What's it like from your side when you get a call from another government agency like FIRE that they've got this? Where were you at? And, and how do we typically handle those things in that unit? Well, in our unit, if for those of you that don't know, we have an on-call list and we have an actual list of who's up next for the homicide. Detective Helm was actually the on-call detective for uh, Sunday, September the 4th. But once he got on scene and, and was told that, you know, we, we did have a body in the back and it was unknown who it was. He felt like, you know, that this is suspicious. This is probably a homicide. We're going to treat it like a homicide. So I was up next for the next homicide. I was, so he contacted me at home and informed me of what they had out there to scene. And I traveled out there after, after he made contact with me. I was at home actually that night because I knew I was up for the next homicide. And it, it, it was a holiday weekend. So you just... Unfortunately, you were just sitting at home waiting for the ball to drop. Yeah, your life kind of stops for that time period. Yes, it does. And that was Brandon Helm? Yes, sir. Yeah, good guy. I just want to make sure we got his name in there because he was, he was an excellent person to work with. 
one of the things I forgot to mention as far as um, responding out to this scene, and this is this was pretty big in the case as well. So I, I mentioned I was in my fire vehicle, which we have a radio, and I'd heard Engine 13 requesting this this help. So as I was actually driving in the direction of the fire scene, and it wasn't long after I heard Engine 13 request these individuals, um, I heard an EC unit. EC is uh, in Lexington. We call them EC units, but emergency care unit. And they were dispatched to Londonderry Drive for a male subject who was severely burned uh, when he was lighting a grill. And as a fire investigator, I mean, something told me that that wasn't right. I People do get burned uh, when they touch a grill, but the way that they dispatched that, that he was severely burned when he was lighting a grill, it just made the, the hair stand on, up on the back of my neck. And I was not convinced of anything but i knew it was something that we needed to follow up on uh, as far as this this mail and it's as a fire investigation bureau we are to be notified anytime there's an injury that's related to a burn anyway but that one caught my attention london dairy is over there in the area of cardinal valley off of versailles road so that that was pretty important in this case as well so that would probably, uh, just for people listening, and I'll try to put a map up on the show notes for people to take a peek at, but Versailles Road's relatively close to Red, right? You could probably access Versailles Road from Red with maybe a turn or two, if yes. I remember correctly. And then Versailles Road, if you went in toward Lexington, then you would come into the Cardinal Valley neighborhood where London Dairy's at. Yes. And Chris, would you use the word intuition? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, that's a powerful <laughs> thing. And And again... Like you said, when a hair comes up on your back of the neck and the ability to listen to things and just go, that's just odd that a lot of this whole business, I think, floats around intuition to pick those things up. So, Tim, you get there. The car's still there, I'm guessing, right? Yes. So there's a body in the back seat. Chris, are you still there? Uh, yeah, I was there the whole the whole evening. So I guess at that point, you and Tim have to kind of catch each other up on what's what. And you don't have any idea either of you of who's car this is or who this victim is is there where do you go if you don't know whose car or who the victim is one of the first things that we did once i got there we and the fire was put out and the car had cooled off some and the corner was there we we started looking for we found the license plate to the car and, and in hopes that that was in fact the license plate to, and we ran that to see if we could find out who was the owner of the car and then while the corner was there and fire investigators were there and this, you know, there again, this is a rural area kind of off the side of the road. It's, it's dirt and all kinds of stuff on the ground. We decided to one, we had to get a search warrant for the car. We don't know whose it is. And that would, that was our job to go ahead and get a search warrant for this car. And then two, we made the decision with the corner to instead of taking the remains out there, let's take it to a controlled area at, uh, Robert's towing at the time they had a bio bay for us that we could use and then so we made a decision to tarp the car and put it on a uh, tow truck and haul it in uh, haul it to town that way we could get everything out and not lose any evidence because anytime you got a, a crime like this one or what there's a lot of stuff that could be lost if you took it out of the car there so that's why we made that decision not to mention it could come a rain Absolutely. as they say in eastern Kentucky come a rain <laughs> And yeah, good point, because that's a, I think it's important to understand is that on these crime scenes, they're always in motion. They're not the weather is there. There's different environmental elements, people in the area and everything. So, yeah, that's that's a good explanation of why we take those things and move them. 
So, Chris, do you accompany Tim to the Roberts Bay? Uh, yes, but one of the things that I did well before we even did that, because we had we did have to wait on a search warrant. The fire department, unlike the police department, we have a little more eggs in the circumstances, and that is because we don't even know that the fire is a crime yet. So we, as a fire investigation, begin to, because agency gives us the ability to investigate. And if we get to the point where we're like, oh, this is a crime, then we then we should stop and get a search warrant. Police department's a little bit different there. they have You all have to have, you get a search warrant a lot more quicker than we do um, because we have that agency that, that necessary law enforcement doesn't. Again, we have to prove that this is an arson crime. And to do that, I began the processing because John was with the interviewing and the search warrant, I believe. I documented the scene because I didn't know. We didn't know how the fire started. Is this fire a result of a wreck? We don't know. We know we have a body in the backseat. We know that the individual is not recognizable, but we don't know really what's going on. So we process the scene just like we would every single vehicle fire. And we, I photographed the exterior, worked my way around, identified some evidence that was already flagged by the Lexington Police Department, and to and begin that process because I want to determine, again, as as we are investigators, we determine the origin, where it started, and then we determine how it starts. So that's what the fire investigation does. And so we had to determine: did this fire start in the engine compartment, and and propagate to the passenger compartment? Or did this fire start in the pasture apartment and and go towards the engine apartment? So we had to we we had to do that, and we do that by fire patterns, and we do that during our documentation. That's the whole that's the big thing about fire investigation is is reading those fire patterns and determining actually where that fire started. And, and you can if you can imagine this vehicle, it literally had nothing left but a metal shell. It was. 99% consumed by fire. It was There was a lot of fire, and it burned a decent amount of time because Engine 13, it took them a little bit to get there. So, yeah, I, I did go to the evidence bay, but that was well into the night because I know we, we did process the scene as far as the fire investigation as is. And that continued once we went to Maggard Bay for the additional investigations. And then I'm guessing you have to investigate the perimeter of that car in case there's anything nearby that may be, well, a clue. Did you all find anything at that point or do you just take the car and go on? Do you secure that area? Yeah, it was, you know, you have to remember it was dark. It was, and of course, we're out there for our flashlights searching the, you know, up and down the road. But that was something that we ultimately came back to do as well. Days following the uh, arson and so on and so forth. And there was some, ultimately there was some evidence located few days later out there by i believe it was you chris is that correct yeah yeah one of the things that we did find that night and this was fsu forensic service unit found on the passenger side of the vehicle outside was a cigarette lighter um, right beside the back window of the vehicle so obviously that was evidence Um, and yet it was about a month later that i actually went out there and keep in mind at the time there was crops so we had corn on one side beans on the other and, and again, we're proven, proven that a fire is arson. We typically don't have a whole lot of evidence that remains. It's very arson fires are a lot of circumstantial evidence with a little physical evidence. So the more physical evidence we can find, the better. And we had searched or I went back out there and searched the, the field after the harvest. I had heard through a, a phone conversation 
that one of the individuals that was later charged um, had thrown his hat. So I went back out there and I was actually looking for multiple things. I was looking for a firearm. I was looking for a gas can. Again, we're just trying to find that evidence to prove arson. And then I'm also looking for this hat. And sure enough, about 500 feet away from the crime scene, I did find a hat that looked to be possibly belonged to one of the individuals that was charged in the crime. So we're at the bay. And how do you has the car been identified and has the victim yet at that point? No, the victim hadn't been identified. We had identified what type of car it was and the registered owner to that car. And that's what Detective Helm and I were working on while they were at the bay collecting evidence with our forensic service unit and zooming, if you want to use that terminology, the body from from the uh, car. Detective Helm and I were researching the registered owner to see what we could find out, an address, a phone number, uh, and so on and so forth. And And ultimately, we... We did locate that person, but it took it took some time to locate so the owner. it was not the victim, was not the registered owner. No, the victim was not the registered owner. Well, let's go back to the car, too. Who does that? Who, who, uh, who and how do they remove the body from that car once you get it to the bay? The coroner is responsible for removing that body. Um, they, would remove, they would remove the body and take it to the uh, Kentucky Medical Examiner to find a cause of death and, and an identification of the person as well. One of the things that, so when we took this vehicle to Maggard, we wanted to take fire debris samples from inside the passenger compartment, um, which is common. If we're trying to prove that this is an, is an arson, you know, in the event, an accelerant, not accelerant, but a um, ignitable liquid is used, uh, we're going to take fire debris samples and we send those off to the state lab. So, after the coroner was able to remove the body, and keep in mind at this point, we st- it's still to really it's hard to identify if this is even a male or female. Um, the burnt, uh, he was burnt so bad that it was hard to really positively identify that. But once that once the the victim was removed from the vehicle, we call it like heat shadowing or a protected area, and where his body was lying uh, on the back seat because he was pretty much lying across the whole back seat. His feet were at the floorboard uh, behind the driver's seat, and his head was over towards the back passenger door on the passenger side of the vehicle. So that area where he was lying on the on the uh, back seat was protected from the fire. So what I did is I wanted to take a couple of fire debris samples, and I took one from where his torso was, and then I went to the floorboard area where his feet were, and took another fire debris sample there so we could have that tested for ignitable liquids. So I guess that shadow is, is pretty much just wherever there's contact with those other things, and reasonably at some point that may not burn. Is that what you're talking about? That's correct. It's basically it's it's just that area is protected because something is covering as the fire's burning, something is covering that. And once you remove that object, in this case it was the torso, that area was not burned. But we we were at this point suspecting that there may be an, been an ignible liquid, but again, we have to always send that off to the laboratory to be identified to determine that. And real quick, you used the word accelerant and then shifted to ignitable liquid. Is there a, a delineation between those two terms? Well, an accelerant is just anything that accelerates the fire to, to burn faster. It doesn't necessarily have to be an ignible liquid. So, ignible liquid is anything like gasoline, kerosene 
charcoal lighter fluid or whatever, but the accelerant is just something that makes the fire burn faster. And could that be actually already in the car, like uh, synthetic fibers and things? Sure. There we go. And I love that's the kind of stuff I think that people will be interested in is those small details make a big difference. So if if that ignitable liquid is not where you gathered or where was it burned in this case, such as if it wasn't poured there, do you just not find anything? Well, just because a sample does come back negative doesn't mean it wasn't there. We could take the sample in the wrong spot. Uh, it could have been completely consumed during the fire. This particular uh, seat, the material of it, it was a foam. I was fairly certain we had a good sample, and our lab results would confirm that. What was it confirmed to be? Hey, you know there's more to the story, so go download the next episode like the true crime fan that you are. The Murder Police Podcast is hosted by Wendy and David Lyons, and was created to honor the lives of crime victims so their names are never forgotten. It is produced, recorded, and edited by David Lyons. The Murder Police podcast can be found on your favorite Apple or Android podcast platform, as well as at murderpolicepodcast.com, which is our website and has show notes for imagery and audio and video files related to the cases you're going to hear. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn, and YouTube, which has closed captions available for those that are hearing impaired. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe for more and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast from. Subscribe to the Murder Police Podcast and set your player to automatically download new episodes so you get the new ones as soon as they drop. And please tell your friends. Lock it down, Judy.